to get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, how did a man get away with kidnapping his neighbor's daughter, not once, but twice, by exploiting everyone in the family? We'll return to our discussion of the WTF-infused documentary, Abducted in Plain Sight. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hey, Kevin. You remembered how to say that. Yes, I did. So, Kevin, this is obviously Thursday's podcast, our Rewind. What is happening on Monday's brand new show? On Monday, we're going to be talking about the new podcast from Leon Nafok. It's the Audible original fiasco Vigilante. All right. That was a great discussion. I'm looking forward to our audience hearing that one. But what are we going to be hearing in today's Crime Writers on Classic? All right. We're going back to our January 28th, 2019 review of Abducted in Plain Sight. Can't wait to hear that one. That was wild. Yeah. So I think I, I mentioned this at the end of our review and we got a meaty, we got a very long discussion on this one. So you're getting plenty of uh, plenty of audio for your your dollar. Bang for your buck. Bang for your buck on With this, this one. free podcast. Yeah. Where I, I met the director at the Toronto True Crime Film Festival. Sky. And it was, yeah, it was Sky Borgman and it was opening night. And I had, I actually, I arrived a night late and it had been the big buzz. This was the premiere film. And I was like, when am I going to see it again? And she said Netflix. And I had no idea. I was trying to imagine an entire theater reacting to this show. Yeah. The one that freaked us out while we were sitting on our couch. So. It was wild. All right. Why don't we get to it? All right. Can't wait to hear it. Netflix has outdone itself with its latest true crime documentary, Abducted in Plain Sight. The doc recalls the story of Jan Broberg, who at the age of 12 was kidnapped by her next door neighbor, then kidnapped by him again four years later. Bert Schultz said, I want to take Jan out horseback riding. When she didn't come home, I was a little nervous. It was a nationwide search. Jan went with me voluntarily. They bring in aliens and mind washing. The mission was that I was to have a child that would save the alien planet by the time I turned 16. The Brobergs say the attacks still continue. If you're laying a trap for me, I'll kill you. His number one goal was to seduce Jan Broberg. And if he had to destroy the family, he would do it. The documentary explores the nearly unbelievable story of how Robert, known as B. Birchold, manipulated the entire Broberg family in order to be with a young girl. Relying on the strength of its source material, Abducted in Plain Sight, is told in a straightforward interview format that is both shocking and maddening. Before we get into the conversation, I want to say two quick things. One is that we are going to be talking about plot points for Abducted in Plain Sight. So if you want to remain spoiler free and just hear our review, jump ahead to the show notes. Number two, this documentary documentary covers sensitive stuff. I want to give a bit of a trigger warning about the kinds of stuff that we're going to be talking about in the documentary, but also the way that I am sure we are going to be talking about it because it gets kind of absurd and I'm just going to leave it there. So if you're the kind of person who does not want to hear people 
perhaps saying WTF and laughing a lot when they're talking about a very sensitive story. This may not be the review yeah. for you, so you may just want to skip ahead to the to the yeah. up and down reviews. All right. So the one thing I want to talk about is the format of Abducted in Plain Sight. Those very stylized recreations cut in between just the straight interviews. Toby, what did you think of the format of this documentary and, and the justice it may or may not have done to the telling of this story? I actually had a big problem with it. I thought it was completely sort of deceitful. Mm. Uh, and at first I was like, oh man, they've got film of this because it's always kind of fuzzy and you, you don't get close-ups or whatever. And they'd never tell you that these are recreations. At least if they did, I didn't see it. So I guess I get the point of wanting to have something and then have it seem like it's sort of period appropriate, uh, but maybe just putting a note that, you know, these are recreations or mm. something. It, it just seemed deceptive to me. Kevin has a look on his face. Kevin, what are you thinking I right now? You, you described it as highly stylized. I think, no, I mean, the jinx is highly stylized. I mm. mean, I think it's intentionally uh, lo-fi because they do want to match the, you know, they did have some uh, home movie footage. It's funny, it did make me think about, okay, look, there's just no way you can do any of these documentaries without some sort of B-roll. And, and unless you have, you know, enough photographs to keep it interesting. To keep Ken Burnsing over? <laughs> yeah, you know, so which, I mean, everybody does it a different way. Some there's animation, some there is, you know, recreation. I, I thought that, you know, that it fit like you know what they're trying to do you know in the first two or three like reenactment scenes that i think oh yeah they have something but i mean i think we're fairly sophisticated in understanding that this is how they're doing that so i don't know i mean i don't i don't recall any documentary putting up the reenactment well usually thing. it's more obvious i think but i have well, to say yeah. i have one question though and laura maybe you can answer this and then jump in with what you wanted to say about these reenactments but there were um, a lot of reenactments in these little scenes about like the girl like lying on a bed, the girl like listening to the aliens on the box, which we'll talk about. Who the hell would sign their kid up for this acting part? <laughs> like, would you be enthused as a parent to be like, oh, my daughter got a part in this Netflix production in which she plays the repeated victim of a child molester kid and kidnapper? Like, it's crazy yeah. to think about that way. Yeah, I was I was kind of wondering about that. It's like, huh, OK, that's um, especially when the guy like has to do his therapy and lay on bed next to her. Right. No. Absolutely not. I just got to say, it was super chaste as far as a film reenactment in the set, you know? Yeah. I think one time you see him touch her shoulder, and I think it's the only yeah. physical contact they yeah. make. The, the child actors aren't necessarily told no. the larger scope of what this character is yeah. uh, happening. Yes, but it, still, their, their still image appears in this. I mean, I, oh, I, always, <laughs> yeah. I always think about this. Whenever we see anything, that a crime that involves kids, I, always, I think about it when we watch Law and & Order, and it's like... Oh, my kid got a part where they're playing a dead kid. <laughs> I always, yeah. I always just think about like, <laughs> I, and I know it's a job. I get uh -huh. that it's a job. I get it. It's I don't just, think you do though. It's weird though to me. It is weird to me. The Exorcist. It's weird to yeah. me. It's weird. All right, Laura, go ahead. Sorry. So I, I actually didn't mind the reenactments like Toby did because in so many of these shows, the reenactments are so 
freaking cheesy and so bad and just so fake looking. You know, when you have like the really bad like actors recreating a scene while somebody's and you're like, oh, this is horrendous. So this I kind of, you know, it actually looked real. It, I think, just kind of helped the story move along. So once I kind of I did have a minute in the beginning where I was like, God, how did they get this footage? And I'm like, no, this isn't real footage. And once I recognized that, it, it actually did work for me. I think time and place is very important to the story and our understanding to the amount of understanding anybody can have about this story, uh, about why things went down as they did. So it was sort of a reminder of this is the 70s, I think is it kind of fit. But all right. Toby's got a different opinion, and that's cool. That's cool. We all are going to agree to disagree on that. Well, one thing that I would like to do talking about this, now that we've talked about really the only style thing I think we can talk about in this, in this documentary, because that's all that it is, is yeah. interviews and written those reenactments. I want to just go through some of the points of the actual story that they're telling and get your reaction to them, because that's what the documentary asks us to do. So that's what I'm going to ask you to do. OK, so let's start at the beginning. B, the friend of the family of the Brobergs, uh, we hear about his relationship with the parents and his wife's relationship with the mom and his relationship with them and their kids and their kids play together, live across the street, yada, yada, yada. And then we hear that as part of his psychotherapy, alleged psychotherapy, uh, one of the things that B does uh, with the parents' permission, with Jan's parents' permission, is come over to their house at night and lie down with her and sleep with her in her bed as part of his own therapy to get over his own childhood trauma or whatever bullshit that is. Burstold was laying by me, and he definitely had his hands on me. He said I was tossing and turning a lot, and that I must have just, you know, gotten uncomfortable and and taking my panties down. It felt like it was plausible because what was not plausible was that this person could have done anything to harm me. And then uh, that culminates in him um, taking her to visit some horses one day and kidnapping her and taking her to Mexico. All right, so that is the setup of this documentary. Laura, what do you think so far? Uh, What the fuck? As I was watching this, I was just, in the beginning, I'm like, huh, well... That doesn't, uh, you know, like I just kept my mouth just kept dropping. Like, I can't believe these people, their suspicion isn't up. And I'm like, huh, they're pretty naive. And then once we got to Mexico, I was just like, what the, I, I like, I was watching this by myself and I actually started like screaming at the TV when they were in the Mexican prison. At one point, one of the Mexican police officers led me down into a lower level in this dang dark, water-smelling hallway to B's cell. He gave the guard his gold ring in order for the guard to let him talk to me. What the ever... I, I don't even know. I, I can't even... It's just... It's it's like... It didn't even seem real. Like, one thing <laughs> after another kept happening, and I'm like, you've got to fucking be kidding me. Now they're in a Mexican prison. Now the aliens are coming. Now they want to get married. Oh, wait, no, they are married. Like, it just it just kept. And then, oh, the parents are not doing anything about the fact that they're married. Like, what is wrong with these people? Now, Toby, you said that you feel like there's two things going on here. The the sort of tragic, disturbing story about a pedophile and then weird stuff about aliens. But as you say, that's just a detail. But you do have an interesting point in your notes about the manipulation of the parents. Can you talk about that a little bit? I, I think that he, Berktold... Like he was able to kind of assess that family, you know, and I, I think there's a, a bunch of things that you can kind of like some of the stuff like kind of just comes out in the documentary. Other things you can kind of intuit. 
but he's able to kind of size them up and figure out what their weaknesses are, uh, particularly sexually uh, with the parents and, you know, sort of unerringly figures out how to manipulate them. And the parents are just slaves to their passion or something. I, I mean, I don't even know how to really go about trying to explain how like the incident where Burke holds in the car and says, you know, basically I've got a hard on Mr. What's his face. Can you give me a hand? And the guy's like, Oh, okay. You know, <laughs> I could see that he, he was sexually aroused. He says, Oh, can you give me some relief? We were laughing and he said, Oh, Bob, it's just kid stuff. And I've got to have relief. He was earnest. You're obviously in a tough situation. Anything I can do to help out. And, uh, and it's just like the idea that he has, that Berktold has figured that psychology out enough mm. that this guy isn't going to be like, you know, screw you, dude, and stay the hell away from my family, which is, I think, what like a lot of people might say. The guy's like, oh, yeah, okay. And then he's able to use it to, to blackmail him. So, I mean, in some ways, I think the most interesting part of this whole documentary is is just how sort of incisive Berkthold was about the family and how he could, what he could get away with and kind of the steps that he takes to make sure that he has access to Jan. Mm. Um, he was very good at so, it. I, that's, that's all I yes. kept saying over and over again. And this is where but the trigger warning stuff comes in. I kept turning to Kevin and I'm like, as pedophiles go, like this guy is super fucking good at being a pedophile. He's really good at it. Like he has mm-hmm. this whole thing down, like mm-hmm. nailed. Because I mean, there's a lot of people. His wife, who we hear almost nothing about, was totally yeah. cool with it. You know, his. Well, we don't know if she's totally cool with it. Well, she she's the one who convinced them to drop the charges and sign the affidavit so he can come back into the country. You don't with think that Jan. you don't think that he had her manipulated? He totally did. To, yeah. This is yeah. How, yeah. There's a lot of people that he has. He's playing a game yep. with. All these people at once. He had all these balls in the air. You know, he's got the Jan stuff. He's got the mom stuff. He's got the dad stuff. He got the he got the his wife stuff. At one point, we hear he goes to the Mormon elders and they basically sanction him. And he's just like whatever. And he keeps like on going. Like he's really good at this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the article I read or that other podcast, I wish I could remember what it was. <laughs> in the um, thing I'm referencing, which I don't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, spent some time on Google. I did it. Spend some time on Google and couldn't find it again. But Berktold's wife plays a little bit more of a part in that telling of it. Mm. And she's like pretty aggressively in his corner uh, Mm. with the family at at times. It's like sort of delivering messages from him to them. I think especially when he's in Mexico, but not in a, you know, in kind of a threatening way for what that's worth. All right. Well, Kevin, I know that Toby thinks this is just a detail, but I really want to ask you about the alien plot. Okay. Um, in Mexico, in that motorhome, Jan describes remembering lying next to a box. I woke up. It was dark. I had the sensation that I was moving, but I was laying on a bed. My wrists and my ankles both had straps around them. I couldn't move. This monotone voice kept talking in my ear. It looked like a little white intercom looking box that I could I could see to the side of my pillow. That's right. An alien voice giving her a mission to make a baby with B. 
She's warned that harm will come to her family if she doesn't follow the mission. She really does believe the alien thing, like, hardcore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I know the alien stuff was, like, a popular pop culture conversation in the 70s. We all know that. We know that the story that uh, Burke told tells Jan about what happened to him when she finds him all beaten up and bloodied in the trailer is the Barney and Betty Hill story. He's just copying their New Hampshire abduction story and like telling it to Jan. What did you think of this alien subplot? Well, it's obviously, you know, a pretty weird, uh, but it fits in with his M.O. of manipulation. You're right. I mean, this was kind of a, a hot topic at the time, and a 12-year-old girl would probably uh, believe something like this. Again, she trusts this guy very much, and he's... He's able to super manipulate adults. I don't know much. I can't speak to much of this myself from any sort of personal experience. But With our aliens? listeners, no, our listeners who are LDS in the uh, the Mormon Church have said that there's um, a trust element that is particular to their faith that probably makes this story more believable. Mm. There is um, a quasi sci-fi element to you know the afterlife about getting your own planet so it kind of might you know start thinking fitting with stories that she's heard at church you know this a lot of people sort of see uh, you know religion in general I mean you look at the Catholic Church that uh, you know you have a lot of faith in what you're told in the context of this is what God or a higher power wants you to do and it's a it's a great cover for those who want to be bad actors now I don't want to um, have us be the ones talking on behalf of members well, that's of what I'm trying to say. I'm, this is what I'm here yes, so that. is it okay if I just go ahead and say say what have some of our listeners said yeah, I think sure. it's interesting so we did get a question from Perdiel she says uh, we had a thread on this in our Facebook group and and she responded to that thread says I'm surprised at how little focus there is in this in these comments on on the religion here there's almost no mention of it in the documentary except for what Jan Sells says herself about the reasoning for believing the alien story so Jamie one of our listeners who is an active member of LDS Church she says she would ask us not to bash she doesn't think think we would the LDS church I will say being LDS we are more trusting especially of other mm-hmm. members she says I grew up in LDS in Oregon in the 70s my parents never would have been that trusting but my mom was also convinced I would accidentally cut off my toes if I mowed the lawn um, then we heard from Jessica who is very thoughtful as well she is a former uh, member of the LDS church but she was very faithful for 28 years her comments also reflect those of my LDS whisperer friend Tyler who I sometimes reach out to when I have questions about uh, Mormon stuff that we're going to talk about in the show I want to just make sure I'm framing things the way that somebody with that perspective might. But Jessica says um, the religion played a very large role in every part of this story, especially since they were living in an area that was prominently LDS. There is inherent trust among Mormons and a bigger likelihood to forgive in situations that may not be appropriate. The local leadership was clearly aware, she says. Um, Then she says Mormons tend to be overly sheltered and naive about sex itself. When you're taught that sex is dirty and, and bad your entire life until one day you're married and immediately expected to jump from maybe kissing to full-on sex with no education. There's a tendency to repress something that should be natural and healthy. And then she also says um, parts of the religion that impacted Jan were touched on directly by her. She talks about the alien stuff. There are many things I still love about the church, but this story highlights why some attitudes and behaviors in their leadership can be dangerous and harmful. And then finally, she says, and this is important, I do not believe that Berkdold's pedophilia or abusive manipulative behaviors are due to his being LDS, I just think he had more opportunity and victims because of the culture of the church. 
Isn't that what I just said? Yes. But Did you just mansplain my answer? Thanks, Jessica. I just we just LDS plains your answer. LDS somebody blamed. who was actually qualified to give that answer. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. <laughs> I do not think that that is the point at all, though. I think that it's more much more a product of the '70s and sort of our culture about knowing who child molesters are and who what stranger danger is about. It's the guy in the van with the candy. It's definitely not the really friendly neighbor next door who offers to come in, who sends you flowers and decides, hey, I'll help you build a wall to separate these bedrooms. It just, the red flags are there in 2019. Can it be both? They're totally yeah, well, not there in 1972. It can be both, though, Kevin. Because, sure. Because in, in closed communities, there's more opportunity for predation. Well, I guess two things. One is... Like, I don't think any of that stuff that they were just talking about is just specific to LDS. I mean, that's that's almost any religious or, I mean, Catholicism. I mean, come on. There's a tendency to trust and then protect in these religious communities. I mean, it's not, I don't think that's LDS specific. And then the second thing is, they keep saying, well, it's the 70s, it's different. Like, this guy like literally kidnapped their daughter, took her to Mexico and married her and then comes back and they still let him sleep in her bed for his therapy. Mm. It's like, yeah, that's not, that's not being naive. You know, that's not the seventies. It's like, I, you know, bonkers. it could be that it could but be the 1870s. Before, I mean, I know that it, it happened this telling of the story, but the idea that you're going to sleep in the bed, didn't that start before over, the first yes, abduction? He was able to see her a lot and slept over yeah. after the kidnapping. Well, I mean, yeah. they told that part of the story. They bounced around a little bit. What I liked about the way they told the story is that, you know, for the first 10 minutes, like they get through the almost the first kidnapping. And I'm thinking, oh, this is not go- well, this is done. Um, but then they step back and sort of ex- set, do the whole setup about sort of why he was able to get this far and manipulate the family. I, I think that that's sort of like, you know, one of the great ways that they tell the story. It is kind of stripped down in the way that they present the stuff. You know, so we don't have any video of like Jan today cooking Eggs, you know, and uh, roll, that kind dad of stuff, yeah. fixing flour. Yeah, like all that that kind of stuff. It's just it's just very straight on. You know, this is kind of like what we remember seeing, like in that basement. Like, I know you don't like you wouldn't like the paneling, the wood paneling right. or that shag carpet. Right. But you have to love that mid-century modern furniture. I there. do. I do very much. The kind you could get from Joybird. Oh, Joybird. <laughs> all right. So, Laura Bricker, did you watch this documentary alone or did you watch it with somebody else? I watched it alone. How did you get through this? Um, I, I don't even know. Um, I, it was funny because I think I was watching it and I started sending you guys messages on our little messaging app that we use. And I was just like, this is fucking bonkers. Yeah. Like uh, bananas, as you would say. I was just uh, like, what is going on here? And then I think Kevin said, I would hate to be Laura watching this. That's right. I know, yeah. That's right. So we watched it together and I did tape some of Kevin's reactions to it in real time. <laughs> The judge sentenced him to five years and reduced all five years down to 45 days. What the fuck? He's to report <laughs> 45 days? Three months. Tom Brady served more time for deflate gate <laughs> than that guy served for kidnapping a girl taking her to Mexico. The fuck, people? <laughs> because this is definitely a singular kind of documentary where so much crazy shit happens that not having someone to react to it with, I can imagine it would be a very different experience. So, Laura, I have a question here that was posed by our listener, Candace. She says, let me get this straight. Your kid goes missing on Thursday night. You don't call the police because you don't want to upset your friend whose husband is also missing. You don't call anyone at all until Saturday. 
at which time you call the FBI, who are off for the weekend. You still don't call the local police. You don't want to get the poor authorities all, quote, worked up over nothing, so you wait another day. Finally, on Sunday, you call the FBI office in Butte, Montana, instead of the local police, and you still don't think anything is wrong. He just took her somewhere. He didn't kidnap her. What the fuck, Candace says. Laura, thoughts? I just had a hard time sort of fathoming how somebody could be not only naive, but just like... So I don't know, trusting, I, clueless. I, I don't. I don't even know what it was In that denial. was going on with these people. I was like, yeah, denial. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Like listening to this, I'm like, are you even kidding me? Like I will tell you that uh, you know, if my kid anything happens, I am on that so fast. And granted, we're in a different generation, but can, can you even imagine if your kid went somewhere and you're like, well, I really don't want to bother them now. You know, yeah. I'll wait till Monday. I'll wait till business hours, Monday through Friday, nine to five. No, uh, but but it just kept going like that, you know, and then he comes, then then she comes back, they go get her in the prison, they bring her home. Well, they don't ask her any questions. Um, hey, how's it going? And and that's the end of that. And oh, by the way, they're married. Oh, that's fine. Like, I just, it, as this continued to snowball, I just, I kept sitting there going, I can't believe this. Like, how, like, what? And that, that was pretty much how, like, I couldn't even speak. Um, you know, it was just, because I, I was speaking to myself as this was going on. Um, how can we call it? I mean, I think the naivete thing is one thing. But then mom has an eight-month-long affair with the the man who kidnapped and married her daughter, her 13-year-old daughter in Mexico. I loved my husband, but I betrayed him. My sexual affair with Mr. Birchtold lasted for eight months. I would say that I was in love with Birchtold. It was an exciting time for me. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. I know that there are some pedophiles who part of the thrill is to see how much of this they can do in front of the parents. Yeah. You know, just a reinforcement of their power. Yeah, I was beyond amazed. I mean, I think with, you know, this is a big assumption and this is not really touched on in the documentary. So this is just me. I mean, I think it says a little bit about the mom and dad's relationship You know, certainly someone who has an affair is not necessarily uh, has a character flaw or something like that. It happens quite a bit. But it seems to me like B was probably the only one who was giving her that attention. Mm. And so even though she just, oh, I stayed a little too long. I mean, I think that there there certainly is some shame. I mean, you look at the the father talking about his experience and the embarrassment. Oh, my God. By the way, in 1970, this guy looked old. He looked old in 1970. Or the dad. The dad. dad. Yeah, he did. The dad looked old then. He did. And, uh, you know, again, it just, I think that, you know, again, what contributes a lot to this is the fact that this was not the kind of thing that was discussed in popular culture or in mass media. and, and, And so a lot of people didn't have a lot of experienced, you know, these things that, uh, you know, the manipulation that can happen. It's because of stories like this that today we recognize the signs, yeah. you know? Yeah, but it is still kind of shocking. I'm, I'm reminded of, like, you know, one of the first episodes of uh, of Mad Men that I saw taking place in the 50s, and it's like any women at the office were just secretaries, any uh, black people there were operating the elevators, right. and everybody was smoking. It's like, I can't believe that's the way it was. Right. This is just a family sort of, you know, very naive, too trusting, and, you know, somebody who's, who was able to identify certain things. 
And I guess it was all part of his plan to, you know, to have some leverage over the parents in case something happened. Toby, the one thing that has really struck me was the casualness with which dad talks about the handjob story. Yes. The casualness with which the mom talks about her eight month long affair with the man who kidnapped and molested and married their like 12 and 13 year old daughter. And just kind of the I don't want to say it's nonchalance. Obviously, this family has told the story before. But does it surprise you about their willingness to have so much candor just sitting in front of a camera? It's not like we're seeing them talk to other people. It's literally just them talking to the director of this film. What do you think? Well, I think they made the decision a while ago when they wrote that book, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just like, we're going to air our dirty laundry. Yeah, I think they've already kind of crossed that bridge. What, what I found kind of weird, I mean, I can see part of it is like in the grand scheme of everything that happened, the fact that I gave this guy a hand job in the car seems like kind of a minor moment compared to everything else. Although he does, he, I mean, he gets kind of, he gets pretty emotional about sort of the consequences of it. Mm. But I think the wife in particular, I think she recognizes it on a level, but there's some point at which it's like, look, this is what enabled everything else to happen. Right. Right. And so, yeah, you shouldn't have had an affair with this guy. And I think she's still like, you still get the sense that she looks at like, oh, but it was such a wonderful time she's for wistful. me. wistful. Yeah, there's a wistfulness about it. I, and I think that, you know, that may be indicative of like the deeper lying issues <laughs> that yeah. obviously are there. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. When they were when they were both, uh, the, the parents, when they were talking about their sexual experiences with B, both of them, even though, you know, years have passed, they, at this point, I, you know, I would hope, recognize that this was terribly wrong. The way that they speak about it sort of gives you this window into just how manipulative B was because they talk about it in such a way that they still talk about it with sort of, I don't want to say a fondness, but not in like, a, oh, this is so disgusting. I can't believe I did it. More like just the way that they recount these sexual affairs that they had with him. It still didn't seem... To really convey the seriousness of the situation because they talked about it in in sort of this like nostalgic way almost. He was very good. I mean, this yeah. is one of those moments where I was if, like, he must if, have been really fucking good at this. Yeah. That many years later for them to recount it in that manner. I was like, whoa, they were really sucked in. Well, I mean, they have had 45 years to process, you know, what's going on. So and he was probably really good. Let's be and real. He's probably really good, but yeah. I, mean, I think it, it seems like, well, I don't, I, again, I just sort of judging by uh, the father's reaction, I think that he was a little more emotive than mom, but I think there are parts of it that, you know, they're still embarrassed by, and then parts of it where they're, you know, they're telling their, their story because, you know, they need to be brave and move on. Otherwise, you, you can't live your life in a, an emotional jail cell. Speaking of um, nonchalance, let's talk about Bee's brother, Joe. Who makes several uh. appearances in the film? <laughs> My brother was always a sexual pervert. He always did like his little girls. Very casually telling us, casually, that his brother was definitely a pervert and a pedophile, and yet he still hired him to work at his car dealership. Because, you know, that's what you do. He was good at talking people uh, into stuff. I hated stuff. that guy. Nobody was better at selling cars than the pervert and pedophile who got a whole family uh, into bed with him, right? I, I hated that guy so much. I, I just was like, that was, I mean, when he was talking about when Jan ran off, when didn't B had like the amusement park or whatever it was that he bought and she went you off to family go fun there. Park? Yeah, and then the brother went. He's like, and I, I, have to, I had never seen them. I had never seen my brother happier. They were just so happy together. And, you know, yeah, she was a kid, but whatever. And I'm like, 
what? Like, are you even kidding me right now that you're recounting this story? Like, they, they, they were like having this big love affair and you were like, well, they're happy, whatever, you know, each to their own. I'm right. like, oh my, I just, I hated this man every time he came on. Well, there is this whole weird, like just going through some more plot points, um, you know, just so that we can get through this because there is so much. I mean, if we talk about every single plot point, we'll be here all day. But there is this sort of middle section where Jan it basically enters puberty and like becomes a petulant pain in the ass teenager. And because she thinks she loves B, convinces her parents to put her on a plane to go to him at his family fun park in Wyoming or wherever the hell it was. OK, that was super weird. But then... In 1976, there is a second kidnapping. B starts coming into their house again, basically steals Jan away from her family, claims he doesn't know where she is for months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Meanwhile, he has squirreled her away at a private Catholic school in the California in California by telling the nuns he's in the CIA. <laughs> Thoughts? Yeah. Anyone? That that's the tell a big lie thing. What do you mean? Well, the idea that if you're going to lie, just lie huge because people. <laughs> Like if I say, well, I'm a traveling, you know, piano salesman, people be like, really? But if you're like, I'm an, you know, I'm an international assassin, then people are like, who the fuck would lie about that? You know, it's just like so outrageous. So it's the big lie. And if you look at the pattern here, nuns in this private Catholic school, closed community. He knows he can go there and like in way like make the nuns also buy into this because mm-hmm. who are they going to tell? It's a right. closed community. Right, right. They're not going to like leave the private Catholic school on the grounds and be like, hey, this girl's father is in the CIA. They don't talk to anyone else besides each other. These nuns, right? This guy knows what he's doing. No. Sure. Well, he no. did because he set it up so perfectly so that if anybody did find her, the nuns were going to think it was somebody that was like, you know, the bad people that he and the CIA were hiding from. So he just set it up so perfectly. He did. Absurdly, but perfectly. So, Kevin, the FBI agent that we see throughout the film, uh, at one point during while we were watching it, you were just saying, I'm just waiting for him to say that he also fucked this dude. (laughs) (laughs) He also kind of, he seemed to get it, but not get it. Like, he was so, like, so annoyed with the parents and their sort of lack of ability to turn on B. Mm -hmm. And yet he also had sort of a nonchalance in telling the story, right? Yeah, I don't. I don't know why everyone's hung up on the nonchalance of it. Uh, you I'm know, not hung I up mean, on it. This it's didn't just an happen last year. It's just an observation. Yeah. I, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that uh, his uh, his frustration with them kind of seeped out around the corners of his interview. But yeah, I mean, wouldn't you? Uh, you're all going all over the country trying to find their daughter, and then you just see you know, the way that they. I don't want to say they brought it upon themselves, but they did not do the things that they were advised to do. And this is the reason why. Right. Okay. so another plot point. Uh, They finally do get Jan back. Eventually, the family does come to see that B is a bad guy. 20 years later, Jan comes out and tells her parents the whole story, basically says it wasn't just me being in love. Surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. He actually molested me and so forth. She and her mom decide to write a memoir together. They go on a little speaking tour doing these little engagements. And guess who shows up at all of their book engagements? Oh, and I completely forgot, by the way, that B burned down dad's flower shop. Okay, that was yeah. oh, side, yeah. another side story. Oh, I forgot about that. Yes. Yeah, so um, B kind of can't let go of the fact that the story's being told. He accuses them of slander and so forth. And they have to take him to court for restraining order. And then we actually do see real footage of that courtroom scene. Mr. Birchfield has remained a threat and a danger to me and my family. It is a constant and continuous concern that has escalated in recent months. I hadn't seen the man for 30 years, and 
for about the first five minutes, I was shaking like a leaf. You know this is quite a story, and you have sold a lot of books because of the story, right? We've sold a few books, not enough to make back the investment that we've made to publish the story. Okay, you told ABC News that you were going to make a movie, is that correct? I didn't tell ABC News that. I told them that there might be offers for that. It could happen, I don't know. Is this your goal? This is my goal? Uh -huh. My goal, Mr. Birch told us, to educate the public about predators like you. That is my goal. Um, this was probably one of my biggest rage moments. Um, just when I thought the rage couldn't get worse watching this documentary, I was like, first of all, um, what kind of court is this that it's okay for her to sit on one side and him to sit on the other and him to start questioning her and going off on her and nobody intervenes in all of this? Like, are you even kidding me? The judge was looking at another direction. He wasn't even he was looking like at that. He was like filling out some paperwork. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. I was just like, like, what What kind of courtroom was this? But then when she stood up to him, I was like, yes, you go, girl. Mm -hmm. Like, th that was a really, that was awesome to see, but I just couldn't believe that this jackass just got to sit there and be like, well, you've made a lot of money off your book, haven't you? Well, you want to do this, don't you? Well, you want, and what's your purpose in being here? I'm like, uh, my purpose is to smack you on the head right now. I hate you so much. But but then also, then we had the biker gang yes. that was protecting her. Bikers oh against God. child I'm abuse. Like, like the details in this story just kept getting, I, I can't even top that. And then he ran over one of them. Yes. I will what? say, I do have some tape of Kevin reacting to our introduction to the bikers against child abuse. Let me just play that real quick. <laughs> One of the bikers recognized him and said, that's Birchall, let's get him. And jumped on the hood of him. He had a, a Dodge van. And they jumped up on the front and was holding on to the windshield wiper. So he, he sped up and then stopped fast. And the guy fell off, but he got hurt. So they, okay, this is the point of documentary where... I hate to say it, but it's true. We were just laughing at every damn thing that happened because it was just insanity upon insanity upon insanity. Toby, um, doesn't every neighborhood have a friendly Baca Bikers Against Child Abuse chapter just <laughs> zipping around protecting children? Of course. <laughs> so many of those, uh, you know, guys that are on bikes that get together for some cause. Cause, yeah. I mean, there's like Rolling Thunder, which was like a very legitimate, right. famous one for like Vietnam vets. Bikers for Christ, I think. There's yeah, okay, one. right. And then it starts. I keep saying, like, okay, we're we're now like trickling down to you know, bikers for bikers against child abuse. Who are the bikers for child abuse? That's yeah, what I right. Know. But like, what do you do on a motorcycle? To, to prevent, prevent child, child abuse. <laughs> Apparently, you take the guy out. Well, he takes you out on his bike. Yeah. Um, so he, Burke told, is then uh, charged, found guilty of possession of a firearm and aggravated assault for the biker incident. By the way, he only spent less than a year in prison altogether for the multiple kidnappings and child molestations. He spent 10 days? 10 days. Yeah. yeah. 45 days got bumped down to 10. That's right. Yeah. Should have been 45 fucking years. Exactly. There's an alien planet to save, Kevin. Oh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> uh, but then we find out from Complete his, the mission. his wonderful brother, Joe, that he died by suicide before the sentencing <laughs> could take place by drinking pills along with Kahlua and milk. <laughs> you know what you call that? <laughs> I what don't do you, mean to laugh, but... <laughs> okay, so, Kevin, what did you call this, Dad? I first called it suicide by sombrero. And my son called it a... <laughs> White Russian roulette. <laughs> That's good. Now, of course, we're not laughing at the act of dying by suicide. Everybody knows that is a horrible tragedy to befall anybody. As any Laura family. Bricker says, who the fuck kills themselves by drinking <laughs> <laughs> milk? But it is one more. Yeah, it's one more detail that just caps this story. 
that just barrages you. It's not a very long. It's what is it? An hour and a half? Hour and thirty minutes. It just barrels you with detail after detail after. And by the time you get to that point, you don't feel tragedy. You just feel. Uh, hysterical because you've just been like pelted for like an just, hour and a half with fat with weird facts. Yeah, yeah. At this point, you just feel so divorced from reality, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's just it's just thing after thing after thing, and it's just hard to you know. I think one of the effects of this whole documentary is that it by the end everything is so batshit crazy that it's just hard to see any of these people as other than characters in some ways. I was like, whenever whenever we get back and like at the at the very end sort of grown up Jan gets gets emotional and it's like okay you know have to kind of reground in the fact that this is actual people this is happening to because otherwise it just reads as sort of like this absurdist sort of fake thriller I mean it, it is I mean it's like something you would read on the uh, paperback rack at the drugstore mm. you know it's just it's you wouldn't totally believe it. out there you wouldn't believe if it if it was yeah I think we should just do what we do. I mean, we I know we've missed about a million tiny details that were in this film, like the sudden disappearance of B's wife and like we never hear from her again, like what happened there, for instance. But let's do what we do. Let us give our... about his kids. I know, and his kids, yes. Let's do what we do. Let's give our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Would you recommend that people check out Abducted in Plain Sight if they haven't yet? Laura Bricker, what do you think? I would say if you want to jumpstart your rage walking routine in the new year, definitely watch this because you're going to be rage walking for about the next two weeks straight. So thumbs up. Uh, Toby Ball, what about you? So I guess my my serious question about this is, is watching like an hour and a half of like every three minutes, like a what the fuck moment, does that make a good documentary? And if you think it does, then... Definitely, this is for you. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit on the fence. I guess I would give it a, a thumbs up just because if that's your thing, you'll really like it because it is, it's just like kind of nonstop. But other than the actual story, like there's not a whole, whole lot added to this. Mm. I mean, it's just basically like, here's the story and here are the people who are involved and they'll tell it to you. The end. So yeah, kind of a, a moderate thumbs up. I'm really torn because my thinking about this is that if you just want something to watch on your own to get a really good documentary, like this is not that. I would say thumbs down for that. This, I almost believe like it's a genre that we haven't seen anything else that that fits this category. Like you kind of have to watch it with somebody else. It's kind of like the red wedding scene in Game of Thrones. Like I really think there could be a new meme where people like I did with you, Kevin, just videotape other people watching this and get their reactions and share them online because it's so shocking. And I think more shocking because of the matter of fact way in which it's told. And that's, by the way, Kevin, like I'm not hung up on the fact that they are matter of fact. I'm hung up on the fact that that's how we are getting this information. Mm -hmm. It makes it more shocking to see somebody just tell you who isn't like telling you in a state of hysteria. They're just telling you they were kidnapped twice and they believe that their aliens were behind it or whatever. So um, I'm really torn. I guess ultimately... I did want to finish watching it, and I'm still talking about it with people, so I will give it a thumbs up, but it's more to me of a spectator sport than a thoughtful documentary, so I'm going to give it a thumbs up. If that is what you're looking for, a true crime spectator sport, thumbs up. What about you, Kevin? Uh, I am a thumbs up. Uh, What Toby thought was his weakness, I actually think is its strength. The story itself um, is so powerful and outrageous that it, it carries the whole 
documentary and that just trying to add to it and embellish certain things, I just feel like it just would not be uh, useful. I think one of the problems with a lot of the documentaries and podcasts that are substandard have to do with source material, right? It's kind of an interesting story, but it's not anything spectacular. And uh, they try to, uh, you know, find the ways that maybe it is. Uh, This is just a outrageous unbelievable story at its heart and to just tell it I think is the way to go now you guys may remember that over the summer I went to Toronto for the Toronto True Crime Film Festival and this was the opening night film and I missed it because I was coming from Washington I wasn't there till the next day Laura I can only imagine what the crowd reaction was for an hour and a half watching this film. You think sitting on the couch was something. You imagine being in a packed theater. Uh, And there was just a huge buzz about it for the rest of the time. I met the director, Sky Borgman, uh, sort of by accident at the end. And I I heard all these really great things. I said, what's what's next for your film? He said, oh, Netflix just picked it up. And it'll be out in January. And I was like, great, put this down. I'm like thinking again, I hope this is good. And it did not disappoint Mm. me. Wow, that was really quite the discussion. Brought us back. Did, uh, uh memories. Remember when people were, like, doing memes of themselves? Oh, my God. Reacting or, like, show, react, showing, like, somebody else reacting for the first time? It was like the red wedding of true crime. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think we've had anything quite like that since. Yeah, it's really WTF-infused, as you said. Anyway, this show was recorded in the Treehouse Yoga Studio above the Mockingbird Cafe in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio otherwise known as Studio C, The Closet, in our New Hampshire basement, where we also get messages from outer space telling us to, quote, complete the mission. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later.